Well, if you would, take out your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 4, 1 through 7. Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. This is our main text. This is um, where we have learned these truths concerning worship. There is such a thing as acceptable worship and a thing as unacceptable worship. There is such a thing as a worship that God regards and there is such a thing as a worship that God does not regard. And if we love our Father, if we love our Lord, uh, we want our worship to be pleasing. And so that's the vein that we're in. Uh, I'm going to begin reading Genesis 4 verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Tonight we continue to seek to apply the truths of Genesis 4, 1-7 through to our worship and our situation. We've already learned that God does care how we worship. We have learned that we are to look to Him and to His Word for Him to teach us how to worship well. Our love for Him, our love for truth, our love for one another, and our love for the lost compels us to go to Him and learn what true worship looks like. Now this morning we saw two elements that God has commanded for us to have in our worship together. Um, the reading of Scripture publicly, and also the times of corporate prayer. And they are essential. Uh, they are essential to proper worship. Well, tonight we're going to look at two more elements of proper worship. And we're going to begin by looking at 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 4. So if you look with me at 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 4. If you're using a pew Bible, this is page 996. 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 4, here is a very clear command, not only for us to have the public reading of Scripture and for us to have corporate prayer, but now here we learn that there is to be the preaching of Scripture. Paul writes to Timothy, verse 1 of chapter 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So here we see a very clear command to preach the word. The command is given to Timothy as a pastor at the church in Ephesus, but this command is also given in Holy Spirit-inspired Scripture to all of Christ's churches as an essential element for us to have in our worship. This morning, we read in talking about the public reading of Scripture, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. We read there, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. And that's a good summary of what preaching ought to be. Preaching ought to include the reading of Scripture, teaching 
on that scripture, explaining what it means, and then exhortation, calling on God's people to believe and to obey what has been explained to them. And so in that one verse, 1 Timothy 4.13, we have a good summary of what preaching ought to be. Um, in our case, for example, we're looking at Genesis 4, 1 through 7. And so I have sought to teach to us over the last few weeks the main doctrines of that text. And the one we spent the most time on is the fact that there is a kind of worship that God regards and a kind of worship that God does not regard. And now we're trying to apply that. I'm seeking to exhort us. I'm teaching what that means for us in New Testament days. But I'm also seeking to exhort us to bring to God that which is acceptable worship, that which is a worship that God regards. And so I, I believe what I'm doing is genuine biblical preaching. I pray that God will help me do it better and that I will grow up to be a, a better preacher certainly than I am. Uh, but that is what I believe we are doing, preaching God's word. We, hear, we see here in 2 Timothy 4.2 that a preacher is to preach the word. Uh, whatever else a preacher might include in his sermon, the central issue must be the content of the Word of God. Um, I've explained this before. I believe wholeheartedly that biblical preaching is expository preaching. And all expository preaching means is that a preacher exposits the text. Um, You know what it means to deposit something, right? You put something in. You deposit your money into the bank. You put it in. Well, to exposit means the opposite of that. It means you draw out. Expository preaching means that we go to a text and draw out of the text the truth that is there rather than going to a text and depositing in our own ideas, using a text to preach our own opinions or um, our own ideas of what ought to be true. And so expository preaching is a kind of preaching that seeks to draw out the truths of God's Word from the biblical text. I don't want to deposit my own truths into the passage. I want to exposit what's already there, teach on it, and exhort us to follow it. Now, at this point, as your pastor and as a preacher, I would ask for your prayers, not only for me, but for all of the preachers that serve God's church in our community. Uh, Preachers are called to be ready in season and out of season. means that we're called to preach the Word both when that's wanted and when that is unwanted. Uh, Preachers are called to reprove and rebuke. You see that there in the passage. Which means that preachers are to confront people about unrighteousness in their lives. We're not to shy away from calling sin, sin. We're called in this passage to exhort, which means pleading with God's people to be believers and doers of the Word. And preachers are to do all this with complete patience and with teaching. I remember when I first came here to Mount Hermon, one of the things that I was probably most naive about was that I I sort of came in, I think, with the idea that if I was preaching on a subject and could show it from the passage, it would only take one sermon. And if I could show you something in the text in that sermon, that would be it. That would settle it. We as a church would embrace it and move on. Well, I quickly learned that's certainly not the case. That's not the case for me personally. I don't often learn the first time I hear something. I don't immediately change. It takes time for God's Word to set in. It takes time for the implications of God's Word to set in. And so pastors are called to, uh, to, to preach with complete patience and teaching. We're to be patient and we're to keep teaching and teaching and teaching without becoming frustrated, without becoming discouraged. Now the Bible doesn't give us particulars 
about what a sermon should be like. It doesn't tell us sermons should be this many minutes long. It doesn't tell us how many points the sermon should be made up of. It doesn't tell us what kind of illustrations are appropriate. These things are left to matters of wisdom. But we do need to remember that the way we worship does say something about our view of God. And so we ought to seek to use all the elements of God in a way that reflects on our reverence and seriousness towards Him. I know that compared to what many of you have known in the past, my sermons tend to be a little bit longer uh, than maybe you're used to. And uh, the reason I preach a little bit longer sermons, at least compared to to some, um, is that I want, well, one is because there's so much to say. Uh, It seems to me that that in any passage of Scripture, there's so much treasure there. And I want to do a good job of showing you that there's a lot of treasure there, that there's a lot to be brought out, so that when you're at home on Monday and Tuesday, and you're sitting in your room with your Bible open, I don't want you reading three three chapters of Scripture and then closing your Bible and saying, I've done my Bible reading. I want you to see there is truth in these passages. There's lots of thinking to do. There's lots of digging to do, because there's so much here. And so I want you to see the glory of the content of the Word of God. And so we do that by dwelling on passages for a length of time to show you that there is so much in any little part of God's Word. Uh, Second, I, I preach longer sermons because I want you to see that the Word of God is worthy of your careful attention and study. We do not worship a trivial God, and He has not given us a trivial Bible. He is worthy of our time, and He is worthy of our focus. So I hope you are learning Sunday morning, Sunday night, as we have the preaching of God's Word. I hope that I'm preaching in such a way that that you're getting a grasp on the weight of God, that He is a worthy God, a glorious God, a holy God. Second element that I want to draw our attention to is the singing of God's truth. Look with me at Colossians 3, verse 16. And of the four elements that God has commanded us to have in worship that we're looking at today this morning and this evening. This is the fourth, and we're probably going to spend more time on this one than any of the other ones. And we're not going to spend more time on singing because it's the most important. It most certainly is not. Um, If you're going to take something out of the service between the public reading of Scripture, the preaching, um, the prayer, and the singing, the singing should be the first to go of those four. Now, we shouldn't take any of those out. God commands us to do all of them. Uh, But the singing is certainly not the most important. However... Um, It has been the cause of a lot of controversy and uh, much divisiveness among God's people. And so I think we need to to spend some time here and let the Bible shape our thinking on this subject. Colossians 3, beginning in verse 16, says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Well, there is no other element of worship that God has commanded us to do that Christians seem to be so quick to argue and disagree about. Okay, what songs should we sing? What instruments should we be allowed to have in worship? What style should the music be? Should just the congregation sing? Or should we have a choir or a praise team or something else? Should there be special music, soloists and duets and so forth? Is it okay if we lower the lights during singing, or is it better to leave the lights on? How much singing should we have? Is it okay to use secular music in a worship service? Many, many churches have been split 
over these issues. Some churches have formally split, where a group leaves that church and starts their own church that does music the way they like. Other churches have been split in principle in that they've split themselves into a contemporary service and a traditional service, or they've split themselves up into two different styles of worship. And as I said this morning, in my opinion, that's not being one body. Um, Here again, we must remind ourselves that the question, even when it comes to the singing of God's truth, the question is not first, what do we desire, but what has God commanded? What does God's Word have to say about what we sing together? And so looking at Colossians 3.16, let me make a few observations for us. Uh, Number one, I think it's clear in this passage that our songs are to be directed towards God. Uh, We see this clearly in the verse. We are to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. Um, Our songs are to be Godward. This means that, that, that we are to honor Him and bring glory to Him as we sing songs to Him. And what this means is that we should only sing songs which we believe are appropriate to sing in the presence of a holy God. We should only sing songs that will please Him, not any songs that do not please Him. And uh, that takes a lot of secular music out right there, doesn't it? Uh, Also, as a matter of our hearts, I want you to think about this. As a matter of our hearts, we need to remember that we are singing to God, who is the most important, important audience we will ever have. And therefore, we should honor His dignity by giving our all in our singing. We don't sing uh, the same way with friends as we would sing if we were putting on a concert for the king of the world. Well, on worship, we're putting on a concert for the king of the world. We're lifting up praises to him. And so we ought to sing with that kind of dignity, with that kind of mm in our singing. Uh, Whether we have a great voice or a terrible voice, God gave us the voice we have, and he has called us to use that voice for his honor. And so we ought to sing our praises to the Lord. Well, second observation I would make is that our singing is to be directed towards one another. Now, this isn't a contradiction of what I've said earlier. Rather, the same verse that says, sing with thankfulness in your hearts to God, also seems to say that our singing is to be to one another. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. In other words, singing is one of the ways that we teach one another. Singing is one of the ways that we help point one another to Jesus. This is why I often talk about corporate singing as an act of brotherly and sisterly love, as we sing God's sanctifying truth into one another's ears. There's nothing, and I mean nothing, that you could ever say or sing better or more helpful than God's truth. It is this truth that God uses to make us holy, to convict us of sin, to encourage us, to point us to Christ, to strengthen our faith and to give us courage and boldness. Don't you want your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ to grow into maturity? Don't you want our family, our church family, to grow up into holiness and spiritual maturity? Well, one, just one, but one of God's appointed means of our church family growing up together in the faith is the singing to one another 
of God's truth. Now, just in case you don't see it here in Colossians, it is even more clear in Ephesians 5. Let me just read this to you. Ephesians 5, 18 and 19. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, listening, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So Paul makes it very clear. In our singing, we are to address one another, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So we're singing to God. So Paul, in both Ephesians and Colossians, says that our songs are to be Godward as we sing truth, addressing one another. Uh, This is why I'm no longer, I used to be, this is why I'm no longer a big fan of of, of turning down the lights in the worship service and having everybody close their eyes and, and, and sing to God as if it's just me and God. There are other times that are appropriate for that. But in the worship service, the corporate worship, it's not supposed to be me and God. It's us and God. And Paul says that I'm to address you in my singing and that you're to address me in our singing as we love each other by singing these truths. And so if if we're singing and you see me looking at you while we're singing, don't feel uncomfortable. There's not something on your face, all right? The reason I'm looking at you is I'm loving you. I'm I'm directing my song towards you. We're singing to one another. And that's how it ought to be. That's what Paul calls us to do. That's what God, through Paul, calls us to do. Have you ever noticed how even those people who have the worst memories can typically remember the words to their favorite songs? Doesn't music have a funny way of taking words and putting them deep into our souls? How sometimes a song that we've heard enough times, we can be walking around the house singing it without even realizing that we've memorized the song. We might even start saying words and we don't even know what we're saying, right? Because music has a way of putting words into our hearts. Well, God calls us to have the Word of Christ dwelling in us. And one of the best ways, one of the God-appointed tools to put the Word of Christ, the Word of God, into our souls is through song. And so our singing is important as both a means of memorizing God's Word as individuals, but also as a way of memorizing and putting God's Word in our hearts as a corporate family. Remember what David said? Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Well, if we love one another, we help each other hide God's word in our hearts through singing. Third observation, and I think this one is obvious if you've been listening to what I've been saying, is that our songs are to be filled with truth. Our songs that we sing are to be filled with truth. Paul says that the word of Christ is to dwell within us richly. And then he says, do that through singing, which means our songs are to be filled with the word of Christ. The word of Christ won't dwell in you through song unless your songs contain the word of Christ, God's truth, scripture. There are lots of songs that in other contexts are good and just fine to listen to. But in the context of corporate worship, they're out of place because they do not contain the word of Christ. They are not truth-filled songs. Worshipful, corporate worshipful songs are to be filled with good doctrine, with good theology and good measure. Um, The very purpose of our singing is lost if our songs are wasted uh, because they do not contain God-centered truth to hide into our hearts. As your pastor Over the last couple of years, I've had the responsibility of choosing the songs that we sing in our 
worship services. And I want you to know that I do not take that lightly and that I don't just close my eyes and say, here's the songs I think we're going to sing this week. Uh, nor do I just look for my favorite songs and, and pick those out. Rather, um, back two years ago, I took three different hymnals and went through all three of those hymnals and, and tried to choose what I thought were the best truth-filled songs. I didn't care about style. Lyrics is what mattered to me. What, what songs had the best truth-filled, doctrine-filled lyrics that I wanted to be on our hearts and minds as a congregation? And those are the hymns, those are the songs that, that we've been singing. Um, I know... Some of you might wish we sang some others, and I I understand that. And I thank you for being patient and kind with me uh, in this matter, because in many other churches, people have created a ruckus over things like this. But for some reason, not here. By God's grace, though some of you have a whole list of songs that you wish we would sing, songs that maybe we used to sing here at this church that that aren't sung anymore, Um, many of you have been very humble and kind to learn these new songs and I'm very thankful for that. Um, I see that as a sign of God's work in you and in our church. Uh, by the way, you can pray for me as I seek to choose each year what songs are I think are going to be most helpful to have on our hearts in that church year. And you are welcome to bring me suggestions. Don't get your feelings hurt if, if I say, you know what, that's a good song, but it's, we want the very best. Don't get your feelings hurt if we don't sing it. But, but I'm certainly open to, to suggestions in those things. But there is one main standard that we must follow in choosing the songs we sing. And that's this. Does it contain the word of Christ? Does it contain the word of God? Is it a truth-filled song that will help hide God's word in our hearts? Because Paul, both in Ephesians and Colossians, says that's the purpose of our corporate singing. Now, the fourth observation I would make is that we are to sing psalms, we are to sing hymns, and we are to sing spiritual songs. Do you see that in the passage? (laughs) <laughs> All right, addressing one another, or here in Colossians, it says, uh, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And certainly, if there is one point in which our worship has been lacking so far as a church, it has been with the command to sing the psalms. Um, but we are certainly not alone. Uh, during the 20th century, churches more or less stopped singing the psalms altogether. Uh, You might not know this, but before the 20th century, the Psalms were the main hymn book of most churches. Uh, It was only beginning in really the 1800s that that churches far and wide began adding in the hymns along with the Psalms. And then over time, the Psalms began to lose prominence. The hymns gave more prominence and churches almost forgot how to sing the Psalms. And the hymns kind of took over. And yet we have here in the Scriptures a clear command to sing the Psalms. Now let me ask you this. Can you imagine a better collection of songs to sing than the Psalms? Would you mind suggesting to me a songbook with a better author than the Psalms? Is there any other songbook where every song is inspired by God and infallible? Right? This is what is unique about the Psalms. Now, hymns are important. Older hymns are important. Newer hymns are important. We're going to talk about hymns in a minute. But Psalms are most important because they are the very Word of God in lyrical form. And why did God give us the Psalms in lyrical form? So we could sing them, right? Now, should we read them? Absolutely. Should we study them and preach on them? Absolutely. 
but let's not forget to sing them because that's the way they have been given to us as songs to be sung. Now, as I mentioned, there is an issue here. Namely, churches today seem to have forgotten how to sing the psalms. We, we don't know tunes for the psalms anymore. Um, test yourself this way. How many hymns do you think you could just start singing right now from memory? That. How many psalms do you think you could start singing right now from memory? Yet the Bible says to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and I have a feeling that if God had a preference, He would say psalms first and then the hymns, because the psalms are His inspired Word of God to hide in our hearts. So, starting in a few weeks, I want us to try a little experiment. And I'm going to try very slowly to begin teaching us a psalm or two so that we can begin adding a few psalms into our singing together as a church in obedience to this scripture and also because it makes great sense to hide God's word in our hearts through song. If you want to memorize scripture, one of the best ways to do it is through singing scripture. And so I hope that maybe by next year at this time, you'll be able to say, well, I can quote this psalm, this psalm, this psalm, this psalm, and this psalm if you'll let me sing it, <laughs> right? Because you'll, you'll have learned it through song. Now, what about hymns? What about hymns? Paul says we're to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Hymns are simply songs that are written and sung by God's people in order to teach and celebrate God's truth. And we have examples of hymns even in the New Testament. We have the song of Mary when she finds out that she is going to give birth to the Messiah. We have the song of Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. In Colossians 1, in fact, if you want to just turn back a page and look, Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That whole passage is thought by scholars to be Paul quoting an early Christian hymn. Uh, Philippians 2, 5-11, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That wonderful uh, series of verses that end with the name of Jesus Christ being praised as Lord of all. That whole series of verses is thought to be a hymn sung by the early Christians. Uh, We don't know if Paul wrote it when he was writing Philippians or if he was quoting one that was already in existence. But these appear to be hymns that were sung by the early Christians. So hymns have been with us since the beginning of the church uh, until today. Now, unfortunately, our hymn book uh, doesn't include many hymns uh, dating back before the 1500s. So there's 1500 years of church history where we just don't have many hymns still remembered. Um, The one that comes to mind that we do still have is uh, Francis of Assisi wrote in the 1200s, All Creatures of Our God and King. And so we still sing that one occasionally. Uh, But it wasn't until the time of the Reformation, the 1500s, and leading into the Puritanism of the 1600s, that was when there seems to have been a resurgence of hymns, of good, truth-filled hymns. It was during these days that God gave His church hymns like a mighty fortress is our God, and praise to the Lord the Almighty. And then uh, you go from the 1500s and the 1600s, the gospel has been rediscovered and the gospel is being embraced all over the world, it seems like. And so, well, what happens when people get saved? One thing they do is they sing. 
because they're happy, they rejoice. And so as the gospel was being rediscovered and was spreading, people began singing these new songs. And so when you get to the 1700s in particular, you have suddenly a boom of wonderful Christ-centered godly hymns. Amazing grace, come thou fount of every blessing, when I survey the wondrous cross, oh for a thousand tongues to sing. And we could go on and on and on and on. Uh, These were the days of Isaac Watts. John Newton, William Cooper, Charles Wesley, some of the best hymn writers that have ever lived, lived during this time. Now, that was sort of, in in my opinion, the peak of hymn writing. And when you get into the 1800s, it begins to go down a little bit. We find a real mixed bag. Uh, What had happened is the Enlightenment had taken place and turned many people away from God. Deism, the belief that there is a God up there somewhere, but, you know, let's not name Him or anything. Uh, deism, as well as universalism. We're all going to be saved in the end, so it doesn't matter anyway. Those views became rampant, particularly here in America. And many of those who remained faithful Christians fell into awful um, theology of men like Charles Finney and those guys that we've talked about in the past. And so some of the hymns, a lot of the hymns of the 1800s, reflect some really bad, unbiblical Theology, But there were still some that were, were very good, uh, some very solid hymns. Horatius Bonar, for example, wrote, Not What My Hands Have Done, or I Lay My Sins on Jesus, both hymns we've sung this past year. Uh, many of you know the name of Fanny Crosby. And Fanny Crosby was sort of the preeminent hymn writer of the 1800s. Some of her hymns, hmm, not so good. Many of her hymns are excellent. And uh, I think one of the best hymns, and one we sing a lot, is Jesus Keep Me Near the Cross. And uh, a wonderful Fanny Crosby hymn. Um, well, towards the end of the 1800s, you get the Industrial Revolution. And suddenly America is beginning to prosper like never before. And now, suddenly the bad theology, which had taken root in many of the churches in our country, is suddenly combined, I know this won't mean anything to some of you, but it gets combined with, what's, with, with a, a post-millennial optimism. Uh, let me try and explain what was going on. These were the days of the social gospel. There was a lot of, with, with the Industrial Revolution and America prospering, there was suddenly a lot of pride in the human spirit. Look at what we've done. Look at what we can do. And during this time, the gospel became no longer about Jesus dying on the cross as a substitute for sin in order to save us from God's wrath. Rather, in these days, the gospel became about doing good works. Jesus' call to obey Him in doing good things. And so Christians during these days were involved in fighting poverty, fighting inequality, setting up labor unions, establishing laws against child labor, working for the prohibition of alcohol, seeking to put an end to social justice and social injustices and social evils. These were the days when many of the humanitarian organizations that we know today, you know, the Red Cross, the Salvation Army, a lot of those were started in these days. And so the view, the view that became very prominent during this time was that when Jesus said he was going to come at the end of the age, what he meant was the Christian spirit of doing good works was going to put an end to all poverty. It was going to put an end to all social injustices and was going to bring peace to the world. And once Christians had done all these good works and brought peace to the world, Jesus would return and reign over it. And so these were days of mission. And a lot of our hymns in our hymn book from that time period reflect that. Um, We have a lot of in our hymn book militant hymns about going off to war, not with guns, but with good works under the banner of Jesus to change the world. 
Onward, Christian soldiers. Stand up, stand up for Jesus. Lead on, O King Eternal. Are just a few of the hymns written at the turn of the century. Now, some of these hymns are okay, but they definitely lost the focus of the gospel. They definitely became much more about our good work seeking to change the world than they were about what Christ has done for us. Now, as a little aside, I'm telling you more about hymns tonight than I probably ever will again, but I want you to know why we sing what we sing. There were some hymns written during the 1800s that did talk about fighting with guns in order to bring about Christ's kingdom. Awful hymns. And let me just mention one that you're going to know. Have you ever listened or looked at the words to the battle hymn of the Republic? Ever seen what that song is about? That song was written to speak about the Union Army, written by a lady the day after she visited the Union Army camps, was written to speak about the Union Army exercising Christ's judgment against the Confederate Army. That song, it's speaking, though it doesn't say the Union Army in the text, what the lady had in mind, what she's speaking about is the Union Army being used by Jesus to sift away the wicked and the righteous before the judgment seat of Christ. In the verse, there is a verse that most hymnals leave out, but you can see it online. There's actually a a verse in that song that seems to promise grace and salvation to those who use their guns to kill the enemies of Jesus. And in that song, the enemies of Jesus are the Confederate Army. Um, It actually speaks about the Union Army being used to crush the serpent's head. And so, to be blunt, it's it's an awful song. And uh, uh, the lyrics are full of untruth. And churches sing it all the time. And so all I'm, what I'm doing here is not just teaching you about singing. I'm teaching you about discernment. The importance of being able to, to discern what is right and what is wrong. And to think about the songs we sing as well as everything else that we do here. To ask, is this bringing honor to God? God calls us to be careful in our worship. He, as we saw with Cain and Abel, God takes our worship seriously. And yet so many Christians sing any old song that happens to come up because it's, it's in the hymn book or because other people sing it. Well, the other major group of songs that took place in the uh, early 1900s leading up to World War I uh, were songs that, that, that those who study these things, uh, they say they were characterized by something called triumphalism. Uh, this was a view that once you get saved, everything is a bed of roses. Once you get saved, everything is good. There's no, there's no, no, no valleys to walk through. There's, it's just all wonderful. And, and the back of our hymn book in particular is filled with, you know, um, perfect submission, perfect delight, visions of rapture now burst in my sight, heavenly sunlight, he keeps me singing, sunshine in my soul. And it's not to say that all those songs are bad, but, uh, but the difference between them and the Psalms, the Psalms are often filled with joy, but the Psalms are typically filled with joy about Christ bringing us through the valley, through the trials. Whereas many of these songs give the impression that once you know Jesus, that's it, you're happy. And uh, there are no tough times, there are no cancer. Um, The main problem with the songs of the 20th century in that era is that they lost their focus on God. They lost their focus on Christ as the center of the songs. Uh, Suddenly at this time, they were no longer about God's glory. They were suddenly about my joy. Uh, They were no longer about what Christ has done. They were now about what we are doing. And this is so clear in our own hymnals. Let me grab a hymnal. If you've ever looked in the top of the hymnals, you notice that they're in categories. 
Right? Uh, it starts out talking about majesty. It, it, the first whole half of the hymnal is about God. It starts with God the Father. Holy, holy, holy. How great thou art. Uh, then praise and adoration of the Father. Then it moves to the Son, singing about His birth, singing about His death, singing about His grace. And then it talks about the Spirit. The first half of the Bible, is, uh, of the Bible, the first half of the hymnal are songs about the Father, Son, and Spirit. The second half of the hymnal are songs about us, about our faith, about our joy, about our mission. Well, the first half of this hymnal, by and large, was written in the 15, 16, and 1700s. The second part of this hymnal, by and large, was written in the 18 and 1900s. And so you can compare the songs and you can see that there's a shift in focus during these time periods away from God and onto us. Not all bad songs. There were some, there were some good ones during this time. But in general, that seemed to take place. Now, when we get to the late 1900s, um, World War I and World War II pretty much destroyed the social gospel and the post-millennial optimism of that time. No longer do you find songs about everything being a bed of roses uh, after World War I because Christians in America suddenly awoke to the fact that there is real pain and real suffering in this world and that we trust a God who leads us through it, not a God who takes us away from it. Um, and so the next shift that seemed to take place, and it, it really came to, 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 to fruition in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, um, was a change in how Christians understood worship. Uh, it was no longer about singing truth to one another in order to teach and edify one another. Suddenly singing became about getting into a kind of mood, a kind of feeling. The charismatic movement had a resurgence and they played a big role in this. Christians began to sing short little praise choruses. Um, these choruses often said no truth at all, uh, but they repeat the same words over and over and over as they seek to get you into a certain worshipful state. Um, it's actually a very pagan idea. Uh, and this is when we got to people, you know, turning down the lights and close your eyes and it's me and God and we're going to sway back and forth and, and sing until we get to this, this mood. It's, it's, it's really, here's what it is. It's an attempt to use God to get to some kind of a spiritual high so I can leave that place saying, I've had a certain feeling, therefore I've worshipped. Totally foreign to the pages of Scripture. Now, now, by the way, I grew up in the 80s and the 90s. I loved the praise courses. I led the praise choruses. Uh, I was in several praise bands, all right, uh, growing up. In, in high school, uh, as a youth pastor, we had a big Wednesday night youth service. Usually had 60, 70 youth there, and we had big stages. We had the drums and the bass guitar, had the screen with the words. We would turn down the lights, and everybody would close their eyes, and we'd, we'd sing back and forth. And, and you know what? At that time, that's, we thought that was biblical worship. And it was all about trying to get to that place where we had that feeling, where we had the, the shivers go down our spine. And if you got the shivers, you would worship. That was what worship seemed to be. Um, but the truth is, uh, that's not, certainly not the way Paul talks about worship here in Colossians. And it's certainly not the way Paul talks about it in Ephesians. Now again, I'm not saying there's not a time and place to have a you and God singing time. There are some psalms that certainly seem to be very personal, me and God kind of psalms. But corporate worship does not appear to be about that. Um, now thankfully, uh, while many churches are still caught up 
in that spiritual high kind of mentality. Uh, God has raised up in our own day several new hymn writers uh, who are seeking to fill their songs with glorious truth that we sing into one another's ears. And so some of the new songs that we've learned in Christ alone, God of grace, the power of the cross, these songs are just chuck full of good doctrine that if you if you stake your soul on what they say, you'll find salvation. And so, uh, and so I'm thankful that there are some, some new hymns being written that I think are, are excellent. Um, we want our songs to take our attention and our affections and put them squarely on God, because that's what worship is about. It's supposed to respect... God doesn't... Let me just be honest. God does not want us to gather together to sing to Him about us. <laughs> he wants us to gather together to sing to Him about Him, about His glory about what He has done and who He is. Now, I've shared all this tonight. I will probably never again go into this much detail about hymns in a preaching service again. But I I do want you to understand why we sing what we sing. And if you wonder, why do we sing so many songs from the 1600s and the 1700s? Well, that's why. They really understood. They were so biblically rooted uh, in the days of Puritanism. They, They had learned how to worship from the Scripture. And uh, that's being rediscovered in our own day. I was so thankful at the Southern Baptist Convention this week to see so literally hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of young pastors that showed up to that convention. And many of them are rediscovering these things with their churches. And um, I'm very excited about that. Um, However, while we sing a lot of songs from the 16 and 1700s, we're not going to not sing the others. Um, If you have some suggestions of good, truth-filled songs, of the diamonds in the rough from the 18 and 1900s, we will sing them as well. Um, So, when it comes to singing, the vision of worship that I see, that I believe is biblical, is is a kind of singing in which we sing psalms, and in which we sing the best of hymns, both old and new. What about spiritual songs? What are these? Well, this gets a little more tricky. I'll just tell you quickly what I think. My understanding is that spiritual songs here are prophetic songs. Songs that were inspired by the Holy Spirit intended to reveal God's truth in the first century. Um, Remember, when Paul wrote this, they did not yet have a New Testament as we do. And we know from elsewhere that God used apostles and prophets to lay the foundation of the church, with Christ Himself being the cornerstone. And since they didn't have the New Testament, God in each church would raise up prophets who could speak or sing words directly from God to that church. And so I believe that these spiritual songs, literally songs of the Spirit, are songs that the Holy Spirit came and poured into these prophets that they would sing to their church in order to teach them. Now, my contention, there are many who disagree with me, but I am convinced from Ephesians 2.20 and elsewhere that we are no longer in the day of the foundation of the church being laid. In fact, I think we're much near the end of the church being made. I think we're near the end of the, the building being constructed and that Christ is coming very soon. And so I do not personally believe that that kind of spiritual song, prophetic song, still exists today. Rather, we sing those spiritual songs when we sing the New Testament Scriptures. And so when we sing songs, like we've done on Wednesday night, Unto the King Eternal, singing right out of First Timothy, you know, that, that singing songs that were inspired by the Holy Spirit, uh, Scripture that was inspired by the Holy Spirit in the early church. Best I can do on that. Okay. Um, what about style? What about style? 
After all, it's one thing to say we're going to sing a hymn, but there's lots of ways to sing a hymn. You can sing a hymn very simply, or you can turn a hymn into a rock song, or a rap song, or a country song, or a blues song. There are all kinds of, of styles. And so what is the best style for worship? This has caused a lot of disruption among Christians. And here's the thing about it. The Bible gives us very little instruction on this issue. In fact, I want to be careful here, but I get the sense that God is much less concerned about the style than we are. Um, I think one of the reasons the Bible does not give us detailed instructions about the style of our music is that it won't work the same everywhere. The style of music that we sing here in America won't work the same if you're going to teach those in China how to sing, or if you're going to the, the tribes people of the African uh, uh, lands. And so uh, I think style will differ region to region. Um, but I think by necessity, music styles are going to be uh, different in different places. And so this is an issue where we just have to be wise. There's freedom here. It, it is really tempting for us maybe to look at another church and to look down on them because we don't like their music style. But I don't think we have biblical grounds to do that. I think we just need to be wise and to make the best decisions we can for our church. I've prayed and thought a lot about this. Um, and here's the best I can come up with very quickly. We're near the end of the sermon. Two points. Uh, one, I think our, our style of music, I think we should keep it simple. And the reason I think we should keep it simple is that I don't want the music to take away from the words. The whole point of the music is simply to, to, to support the words, put, to put the lyrics, the truth into our hearts. And so when you start having styles of music that get all complex and there's, there's guitar solos or piano solos or all kinds of stuff, it, you're, you're missing the point. And so I think we should keep it simple uh, in our worship. Now, that's, you're not going to find that in here. That's Justin's trying to be wise. So... Um, but that's, that's my opinion. Uh, and then the second point I would make is uh, I think we should seek to be diverse. Uh, I think God is glorified in diversity. And uh, I think God is glorified when we do use different styles. Don't, don't do something that's irreverent. Don't do something that's, that's going to be a, 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 a trivial. Um, but I think God is glorified by different styles. Um, in my car, I can listen to my favorite style of music. But when we gather together... I should respect and love you enough to say, all right, when we gather together here, it's not all about what style of music do I like. Maybe we'll sing one style of song, and I'll kind of like that, but maybe we'll do another one. I don't really like that style, but that really fits you. And so I think God is actually pleased when there's unity and diversity, when there's a diversity of, of music. And so sometimes we use piano and organ, sometimes we use guitar, sometimes we sing a cappella, and I think God is glorified by that diversity. All of our music should be filled with reverence and awe and joy and a desire to bless God. Let me real quickly say a quick word to those in our congregation who love singing and who really love music. I would encourage you to consider using your love for music and singing as an opportunity for you to bless and serve this body. And um, there's different ways to do that. I know some uh, like to do that through the choir. Uh, in my personal opinion, here's what I think we really need, and that is we really need men and women in the congregation who love to sing, to stand and to sing boldly and with eagerness in your heart um, so that by your singing in the congregation, your brothers and sisters in Christ are encouraged. Um, I, I bet you've had an experience like I've had where you're in a worship service 
and you stand to sing God's truth and you're just kind of singing along and then suddenly you hear somebody else. Maybe it's beside you, maybe it's behind you, but, but suddenly you hear their voice ringing loudly in your ears and what does it do to you? It makes you want to sing more loudly. It, makes, it actually focuses your mind more on the, on the singing, doesn't it? Because it makes you think, wow, they, he must be really or she must be really getting into this. What, what are we singing here that's so important? And so you begin singing more boldly. You also, at least in my case, you begin thinking more about what you're singing. And, and the whole experience becomes more edifying. And so I would really encourage uh, any men and women in our congregation who really love to sing to, to see that as a ministry opportunity. You don't have to get up and sing a solo to bless somebody if you love music. Rather, get into the corporate singing and set the example of worshiping God through singing joyfully in the songs. All right, I'm closing. For now, let me remind us of two things. First, worship is the purpose of your life. It's the reason you were created. It's the reason you have been saved We were created to find our deepest joy in adoring God, in seeing God, in hearing from God, and responding to God with a heart that overflows with praise and admiration for who He is. There is no better activity in all the world than genuine worship. A trip to Disneyland, a a deep sea fishing trip, a a round of 18 holes on the golf course, a $3,000 gift certificate to the mall. All of these things sound great, but they do not compare to genuine worship before God. And you'll know that's true when you get to heaven and you experience it in all its fullness for yourself. But we're to have a taste of that here. We're to have some of that here. And so I pray that you already know the joy of worshiping God in private, that you already know the joy of worshiping God in your family. But even those are not the same as when your church family comes together to worship the Lord on the Lord's Day. Sunday should truly be our favorite day of the week because it's the day we gather together to proclaim to one another and with one another the glories of our God. Second, let me remind us that genuine worship is a privilege only possible in Jesus Christ. God refuses to be known and loved by people who are steeped in their sin and refuse to turn. God will not have you enjoying His worship on Sunday while living in disobedience on Monday. If you are not in Christ... Your sins have separated you from God and your worship is unacceptable. But God provides a way for us to have the privilege of knowing Him and worshiping Him. And that way is in Jesus Christ. Jesus took the punishment our sins deserved on the cross if we trust in Him. And through that reconciliation, we not only have the promise of escape from hell, And we not only have the promise that we're going to one day be in heaven, but we have the promise of eternal life, life abundant, which is a life of worship. You are saved to worship. But if you have not been saved, that destiny is not yours. And I would plead with you and urge you to call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Amen? All right. A lot of information here in a little bit of time. Uh, Do you have any questions um, about things that were preached today, about what our worship services should include. Yes. Yes. Um, singing the Psalms. Mm-hmm. <laughs> singing the Psalms. Uh, the Bible just says to sing the Psalms. Now, in the past, churches used what's called a Psalter. 
which is basically people at, in every generation have taken the Psalms and put them to meters of their own day. And, um, and so many of the Psalms um, that you can, we have a family worship book that we use at our house, and it has many of the Psalms, and it says, sing this Psalm to the tune of this hymn. And so we can sing this psalm to the tune of, oh, 4,000 tongues to sing. And, uh, and so that way you don't have to learn new tunes. Um, but they're really, in our day, we've only begun rediscovering this. And so there's not many real modern tunes put to psalms anymore. And um, so that's why it's kind of an experiment. We're going to do the best we can and, uh, and see. No, no, no. Uh, in, in the first century, uh, we do know from the practice of the Jews that when the early Christians sang psalms and sang their hymns, they weren't really the same thing we do as far as our tunes. It was much more of a, of a chanting kind of thing. It, have, have you seen like uh, the pictures of Orthodox Jews as they go to the Wailing Wall and they'll be talking like this and I'm singing to you, okay, that kind of thing. So, so you know, they did do those kinds of things, but that was just the way that they sang. And uh, so our way is a little bit different, but it's still... The style is not the important part. It's the truth of the songs that's the important part. And that's what we're to focus on. Yeah, Mr. Bill. Learned songs. That's the wonderful thing about music is it's easy to do that. But I felt something when I was close to her saying it was like I And again, I'm asking all those songs that we sang over the years, were they all true? Not true? Where does that stand with God? Sure. Well, first of all, know that God is gracious. And when people are doing the best they know how to do with what they have, God often honors that. And um, so whether those songs were, were ideal songs to be singing or not, the fact that she believed that they were good songs and were singing them from her heart, um, you know, I think God receives that. And also he apparently used it to bless you. And, uh, and that's a good illustration of what we want to see here is God using our singing to bless one another. And, um, and so, we, you know, we don't want to be, become legalist about this, you know, you know, with these songs. We just want to do the best we can and, uh, as far as choosing these things. Something else I was going to tell you. I can't think of it now. Anyway. All right. Let me pray for us. I'll say a blessing and we'll go eat. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will help us to take these things to heart. Father, our goal is, is not to become some sort of new Pharisees who become so overly concerned with the letter that we miss the spirit of what has been written. But at the same time, Father, we do know that you take worship seriously, and we do want to do our very best to understand your word and to, to obey as best we can by your grace. And so, Father, we do ask for your help. Help us not only to do the right things in our worship services, but help us to do them with the right hearts. 
Give us spirits and souls that love you and love one another. Father, let us understand that our worship to you is actually, in fact, your gift to us because you use our desire to glorify you as a way of making us holy. And so, Father, even when we seek to love you with all our hearts, you end up turning that love around and blessing us all the more. And that's just how good you are, and we're so thankful for that. Father, we ask now that you would bless the food that we're about to take. And uh, Father, we just ask that you would uh, make us thankful for it, remind us, and don't let us take for granted the blessings that we have. Uh, there are so many around the world who do not have uh, the opportunities we have to have fellowships like this and to have the food that we have. So, uh, Father, we just ask that you would bless our conversations and our fellowship. And uh, thank you for this Lord's Day and already the way you've taught us and blessed us. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.